and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Marie LeConte. What's the link between political extremism and misogyny? Are incels always sympathetic to the far right? Do all Islamic State supporters hate women? Why do more men get radicalised than women? Actually, do they? Are all extremists kind of the same? Here to discuss all of this and more is Dr Elizabeth Pearson, a lecturer at Royal Holloway, University of London. Her new book, Extreme Britain, Gender, Masculinity and Radicalisation, is coming out later this month. She joins us on The Bunker today. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Marie. Hi. Oh, thanks for joining us. So you've got a background in, well, I was going to say in teaching terrorism, but I feel like that sounds wrong. You're a terrorism lecturer? Is that better? <laughs> we like to say terrorism studies because it, it does sound wrong. You're right. Okay, that's good. Yeah, let, let's go with yeah terrorism studies. So why did you decide actually to start studying this? For various reasons. But the main one was that I was worried, I think, about what was happening. Yeah, I was concerned about what was happening in the country. I was concerned about the far right, particularly the anti-Islam radical right, which I study in the and write about in the book as well as Anjem Chowdhury and a sort of group of followers he had, which we can loosely call our Mahajaruma, though it was a sort of band group. And that's why I wanted to study this. I wanted to find out more about it. And I wanted to particularly look at it from a gender perspective, because that was something I was always interested in. The subtitle of the book is Gender, Masculinity and Radicalisation. So what drew you to that angle specifically? This is perhaps not the most obvious one. I think when I first started to do this research, I had been hoping to speak to a mix of people, men and women. And I mainly succeeded in speaking to men. I wasn't very successful in speaking to women in um, Hajarun network. It was much harder than I thought to speak to women also in the radical right. So I guess when I was thinking about gender, it was more about masculinities. And as I was talking to people and about the reasons that they had joined groups, the things that they were doing in groups, the things that they wanted in terms of changes in the country and their own values. That was really what was coming to the fore. So that was why the focus of the book and of the research ended up being on masculinities. And the thing as well is that you decided to look at both the kind of, you know, anti-Islam far right, but also the kind of Islamist movement. So where did that decision come from to kind of study those two ends of the spectrum together? Well, that was kind of partly to do with the policies seen at the time. It's policy sort of in this regard changes quite quickly, I suppose. There's quite often sort of buzzwords and people get interested in particular phrases and things. One of the kind of buzz terms at the time when I originally proposed doing this research was cumulative extremism or reciprocal radicalization. So this was an idea that you had a kind of spiral of either discourse or violence, or activism, and it wasn't all that well understood. Policymakers were quite interested in this, and the EDL in particular, the English Defence League, which was a big anti-Islam street movement, and Anjem Chowdhury's Al-Mahajirun, they were kind of two groups that were understood to have this link to each other through cumulative extremism. And that was partly because the English Defence League, it grew up in response to Anjim Chowdhury's kind of poppy burning, which was obviously very provocative and deliberate. So that was why I was looking at these two movements to start with. Mm. So I guess one of the things they have in common is actually quite often extreme misogyny. So what's the kind of relationship between political extremism and the hatred of women? Like, is there a chicken and egg situation here? Or are they usually complementary? Like, does one draw men towards the other? Well, it's, it's interesting because when you talk to people within both of these movements and, you know, you talk to women within both of these movements, 
they recognize the misogyny, but they don't always categorize it as such. So take the radical right, for instance. So when I was talking to leadership women and women in the grassroots, you know, they would talk to me about the difficulties of going to, you know, street protest because these people are involved in, you know, legal demonstration and Britain First is a political party. Jada Franson's not involved anymore. But, you know, so ostensibly they're involved in at least some of the groups involved in democratic process. And they would say to me, well, yeah, we have pushback. You know, Anne-Marie Waters had quite a sort of feminist approach, which was quite different to the English Defence League under Tommy Robinson, for instance, which is quite, you know, really masculinist, obscene chanting, lots of this sort of football stand culture, drinking, and someone like Anne-Marie Waters, you know, that wasn't the culture associated with her protest at all. And she would say to me, I've had a lot of pushback online from, you know, the more traditional aspects of the far right, from those parts of the far right that aren't just about protesting against Islam, but are also anti-Semitic who are white supremacist, for instance. And she would complain about this. And so too would some of the grassroots supporters complain about, you know, the misogyny in the movement. I couldn't even speak to any EDL angels. This was a kind of subgroup of the English Defence League because there was such a lot of stigma attached to being an, uh, an EDL angel, for example. They had a bad reputation sexually for being sexually promiscuous, for example. So there was a kind of internally directed misogyny within these groups towards the women that were in charge. And at the same time as there's this tension between the kind of reverence for the women who are in charge, you know, someone like Jada Franson was incredibly popular. The women leadership really attracted a lot of women to the movement because they were very mobilized around issues to do with child protection. The women in the radical right would, you know, were really anti-feminist. They would talk about feminazis. They would talk about being patriot feminists. But I did speak to some women who were, you know, uh, engaged in Anjan Charities Network who said, you know, look, I am a feminist, even though I wear the niqab, I don't show my face, I believe in the values of extreme Islam. Nobody would say that they, of course, supported Islamic State because that was illegal at the time when I was doing this research. And they had, again, this sort of tension and, and they would say, you know, this is a different form of feminism because they very much latched onto these ideas of empowerment and liberation as British Muslim women. They were, you know, clinging onto this idea of what Muslim was. They were taking what Anjan Chowdhury offered and, you know, and naming it a form of empowerment and liberation, which, you know, can be hard to understand, I think, when movements like both Islamism and the far right from an outsider perspective look as though they are only bad news for women but from an insider perspective they offer many things to women and I think that that misogyny is is experienced but you know it's in, experienced in tension with something provided by those movements too so it's kind of a it's a difficult one to navigate for women in these movements. You write in the introduction of the book that I quote, radicalization, the process towards extremism is a project of masculinity. So could you explain what you mean by that? I guess there's two things that I want to say with this. And and the, the first is that you, you can't think about radicalization without thinking about gender. And yes, men, it is mainly men that's involved in these movements that you see, at least anyway. But that doesn't mean that there's you can't think about gender. It's not just about women. And the second is that when, you know, when I was talking to people, men and women, it became clear that the values of the movement, the things that you did in order to become 
you know, respected, to have status and esteem within the movements. This is to do with masculinity or masculinities plural, I should say, really, because these differed both between the different groups that I talked to in the radical right and also between the movements. So becoming a good activist within these groups is about aspirational aspects of masculinities. And these masculinities are not unfamiliar. In the book, I kind of look at situating the masculinities, you know, thinking about how masculinity is evident in people's lives before they reach the extreme group, and then how it's realised through the things that they're doing and in what they believe within the extreme group. That's why I wanted to put the emphasis on radicalization as a project of masculinity, because it's about realising um, particular aspects of masculinities to get yourself esteem within the group. You actually interviewed a lot of those people. What were you expecting from talking to those people? And did anything surprise you in the end? Because I, I feel like, you know, there are some really shocking details in there, including one of your long-term contacts, just not really caring if you lived or died. Yeah, that, that you mentioned, there was a text message from, so I was out with some friends on the evening of the London Bridge attack, which was in June 2017. And... I had a text message from one of the participants who was linked into Anjan Chowdhury's network and he had messaged me something like, you know, there's some children that are without a father. I have to say that, you know, that incident, you know, when you I don't live in London now, but when you live in London and when you live anywhere where there's an attack that takes place, you react to it emotionally. It was upsetting. It was you know, and you think, well, we could have been out, we were out in South London, we could have chosen London Bridge that night instead of the place where we were. So I was really angry and upset and said to him, you know, well, I I was out. If that had been me, what would you have thought? And he sort of texted back, I, yeah, I know I, I should be bothered by that, but I'm not. You know, sometimes the fact that I could speak to people And, you know, I wasn't friends with them. Of course not. I didn't agree with anything they said, but I had friendly relationships with some of them. And then you get a text message like that and you are sort of immediately, you know, sort of confronted with the reality that actually you are in two very different places in terms of what you believe and the values that you have. And I found it very shocking. And I spent a lot of time with this person. I'd met his children. I'd met his family. I had you know, had cups of tea with him. And he wasn't the only person, obviously. And I, I think that this was the thing. You kind of develop these friendly relationships. You were texting a lot. You know, people be texting about all sorts of things. You know, they're cooking. One of the participants who was arrested and charged with terrorism offences, you know, he would, you know, he used to make lots of furniture out of pallets and he would send me these and he'd send me biryani recipes. And, you know, I, I liked him. <laughs> and it was difficult to confront this kind of two sides of the person who sends me biryani recipes with the person who is going to be appearing in court charged with terrorism offences. Or indeed in the radical right, you know, I would think, you know, People get really angry with me. They, they'd say, well, you're listening to me. You know, we're friends, aren't we? You know, and why don't you agree with me? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? I'd say, well, because I don't agree with you. There's so much evidence that you're ignoring in order to pursue this activism, in order to pursue these beliefs. And it could be very draining and exhausting and frustrating because people would talk to me and kind of have an expectation that that meant I, I was on their side. And 
I never was. And, you know, that was very clear. I think I didn't expect to like people and I did like people. I didn't expect to be able to sit in cafes and talk to people about, you know, their far right um, beliefs. And, you know, and that was a weird thing to be like, you know, I'd be sat talking to people who've been involved in the English Defence League for years or the infidels. They had really quite extreme views. And I think, well, where do I interview them? And, you know, they'd say, oh, let's meet in our in my pub and like we'd sit in their pub and loads of their friends would come and go oh hi how are you you know and I got a sense of their context their community where their views were not really particularly outlandish or extraordinary or extreme so these were some of the things that I found difficult and you know kind of withdrawing from that contact from people that was weird and difficult and when the research came to an end because you know you I stopped speaking to people and that whole period where you're mainly texting extremists at all times of night and day is a really weird, strange <laughs> time because they are just people, you know, and yet they are doing and saying and believing things which are extremely harmful to many people and, you know, in some ways changing the nature of the world that we live in in, in what I consider to be obviously harmful ways. So what was the one takeaway you'd like people to get from your book or just from listening to this podcast? Like maybe especially lawmakers or people working professionally in the area. Like what, what do you think they're getting right currently or getting wrong? Well, you know, I read the, we've had the latest iteration of the contest uh, counterterrorism strategy this year. And there is once again, no mention of gender, which I find quite extraordinary in the, in the aftermath of, you know, being totally surprised by women being supportive of Islamic State, you know, back in 2015, 2016, and subsequently to, you know, even concerns around things like incel movement online, I don't really understand how we can keep leaving gender out of the equation when there is so much increased, you know, interest in this, whether that's in masculinity or in misogyny. So that's obviously a key takeaway for me. And I do hope that I will at, one, at some point in the near future be able to say, oh, great, the job's done. You know, people are listening about gender. I think the second thing, it, it relates to, you know, the discussion I have in the book around empathy, which, you know, I was in a privileged position doing this research and I was able to be empathetic with a lot of people that are causing harm to others in various different ways. I don't expect empathy from other people towards extremists, far right or Anjum Chowdhury's sort of network of followers or anyone who believes anything similar to that. But I do think listening matters. And, you know, for a lot of people, they talk to me about how important it was, you know, I'd come to their pub or I, I met up with them several times and I, I did sit down and I did listen. And, you know, I don't have any power to change anything in their lives. And I don't know that things should be changed in the ways that they want, you know. In fact, I would say probably not. But the fact is that if policymakers and people in power do not listen, then people will find others that do listen. And, you know, in the age of social media and the internet, there are plenty of people out there who will listen, that will make people feel that they have a voice when they don't feel that they have a voice within the kind of um, institutional apparatus that this country has always used in order to govern itself. And I would have some concerns about the direction that that will take us when large numbers of people feel excluded, self-excluded maybe from the mainstream. I'm not asking, I don't think the mainstream should bend to meet them. That would also be wrong, but there must be a way of listening and responding because you're never going to tell people, you know, what you think is wrong 
you need to think something different. That is not going to work. They're simply going to look elsewhere to get that validity and legitimacy that they seek and believe they deserve. So that, I think, would be uh, another key thing for me is about listening. And I'm afraid it's up to the policymakers what they do with that listening. I, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, God, this was so interesting. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Well, it's been great to talk to you about this. And I hope that people get something from the book. You know, when I when I finished this book, the last years, I thought these actors are not going to be relevant anymore. But the people in the book, they are relevant again, 2023, as they were, you know, before. Yay! <laughs> yes, um, maybe good for the book, but less good for me and society. So, um, yeah, so thanks very much for uh, talking to me about this. Um, no, thanks for coming on. Listeners, there are some changes coming to the bunker. Over the past few weeks, we ran a reader survey to see what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, and what we could do better. One thing was pretty clear from the responses. We've been giving you slightly too many episodes to keep up with. As a result, we're now going over to a five days a week schedule, Monday to Friday, so we don't swamp you. We'll keep start your week on Mondays and then run four original editions for the rest of the working week, including favourites like Bunker USA. And don't forget... If you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte and you were listening to The Bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Marie LeConte. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.